I'm Samantha Swindler. And I'm Tom Allman. And this is Oregon Lives, our storytelling podcast based on our reporting here at The Oregonian. We are recording remotely again. So this week's story is about several lives and how they all intersect. And it starts with the life of Saul Gallegos Ruiz. He was an MMA fighter. He was a salesman at a Chevrolet dealership here in Milwaukee. He was 27 years old, in great physical condition, worked out a lot, and he went kayaking alone on the Willamette River on April 16th, and he ended up in the water, and there were several people in the area who saw him struggling and calling out for help, but nobody was able to reach him in time, and he drowned on the river that day. This is like a really sad start to this story. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, it's a typical event that seems to happen in the Portland area when the weather gets warm yeah. uh, on the Sandy River, on the Columbia. Even though we're used to having water all around us, we sometimes fail to realize just how dangerous and how cold that water is. So he went under and was presumed drowned. The search and rescue team came out from Clackamas County, and they were not able to find his body. Photographer Beth Nakamura and I went out to the Willamette River a couple of days later because we had heard that there were family members gathering on the shore every day. They were walking along the banks. They were looking for him. They were kind of just holding vigil. We met up with Alicia Hamilton. She's a woman who lives right there. Her backyard kind of goes right up against the Willamette River. And that day on April 16th, her daughter heard Saul yelling for help. And Alicia ran to get her paddleboard and swam out to meet him. And she told me she got within feet of him before he went under. She could have touched him. He looked at her right before he went under and she was not able to, to save him. That, that is an absolutely haunting thing you just said, to be that close and to look into the eyes of somebody who is about to die, who realizes they're going to die, and to be able to do nothing. She created a little memorial. She kind of put rocks and flowers on the shore. And so when we got there, there was sort of a growing memorial to him on the banks with candles and flowers and photos and rosaries. And it just was getting bigger and bigger by the day. What was it like to see that growing memorial? And why do you think there is a need that we do these memorials? I've seen them when I've been driving on the highway. You see the white cross with some flowers or in Portland, we'll see the, the ghost bikes. Some of them have been there for years. And why do you think there's that need to have these memorials? Because you want a place to mourn. I feel like you need maybe a physical place to ground your grief. And especially in the case for Saul, they didn't have a body. And so they were just sort of going back and forth along the banks there. There's kind of a little switchback trail from the road that you take down to get down to the water. We started just seeing people two at a time, three at a time, coming down. And they were bringing like lawn chairs and food, two more crosses, flowers. What was it like for you to be an outsider with something so intimate? How did you deal with that as a 
as a journalist? Um, the first people who came down were some of his cousins, and they were willing to talk to us, and they told us a little bit about Saul, and they were receptive to us being there and talking about him. And at that point, they were trying to get, you know, they were trying to get some attention on their case because the search had stopped, and they were wanting people to, to kind of keep a lookout. And then his immediate family came, and his mom came, and she was wailing. Like she was sunk down to her knees, wailing before that cross. And when that happened, Beth, she stopped taking pictures. If, if you're a journalist for any length of time, and I'm now in my 40th year, you deal with death. And I have dealt with people who have gone missing and believed to have been abducted. And 30 years later, their family wonders, just like this family, where is the body? What happened? What you did out there really pulls back the curtain on, on how we deal with these moments. These are not press conferences. We are in the middle of something that, as I said earlier, is quite intimate. It's kind of a gut call. I mean, maybe a different journalist would have made a different decision. And, you know, if these had been public figures, you know, if this was like Jackie Kennedy morning, I mean, you know, that that's different. As for the need to know why, I think that was a big part of what a lot of them were dealing with, too. When we were out there, we met uh, Saul's trainer, Nick Gilardi. He kind of became something like a spokesperson for the family. Uh, we've been out here every day, all day. Every day so. Everybody's been out here every day. 9 a.m. to 8, 9 at night, you know, sun up, sun down. Been out here every day. He just kept saying, we don't understand what happened. He was so fit. He was so strong. There had to be more to it than just the water was cold and he wasn't wearing a life jacket. It just didn't add up everything I heard. And so I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And then I just drove out right away. I think I was out here by 9.30 Friday morning. From Salem? Yeah. And um, just trying to put it all together like everybody else. What brings you out here every day? Uh, so... You know, um, he lived in Welch, an hour away from my gym, and he'd come three days a week, so it's a two-hour drive for a one-hour practice. Um, I can't even get kids to walk a mile to my gym, let alone drive more than 15 minutes across town, and he would drive two hours, and then I moved to Beaverton, so he'd drive an hour and a half one way, and then I moved to Salem, and he'd drive an hour and 45 minutes one way. Uh, for eight years. So this is... This is small potatoes. The word closure is really a cliche and so overrated, especially in a case like this. But I think you see this even when the remains of Vietnam vets or Korean vets are brought back 30, 40 years later. The family says it matters that they have something. And we saw that with 9-11. Uh, that the family members knew their loved one had died, but they needed something that says this, this is where it ended. And that unknown, as time goes on, is, from what I've experienced in talking to people, is a more emotionally traumatic in many ways than the actual death itself, because it, it never vanishes. It only increases with time. That was the first story that I wrote about this. And it was basically just about this tragedy that happened and how this family was mourning. I stayed in touch with Nick and Alicia. And a few days after that story ran, 
I heard from them that a retired couple was coming out from Idaho to join the search. My name is Gene Ralston. We are retired from environmental consulting, uh, specializing in water-related environmental issues. And the first body I recovered was in 1983 on the Boise River. And the thank you we got from the family was really brought it home to us what it means to have someone missing and not be able to find them. And decided it was something that we needed to invest in and, and offer to uh, people um, to help them. So Gene and his wife, Sandy Ralston, are amazing people. They don't charge a daily fee for their services. They just ask that their expenses be covered, which for them is basically like traveling in their travel trailer. They get calls all over the U.S. and in Canada. They've been on searches uh, 16 times in Oregon and 20 times in Washington state. People ask us what our percent success is, you know, and I don't even calculate that. All I can say is we found now 121 people and that we will do everything we can to find them. We can't find them all, obviously. We found people after as much as 29 years and and 15 years uh, and four years, you know, that everyone had given up on. And I'm not saying that we're any better than anybody else, but we've had a lot of experience. One year we were on the road, either driving to or on searches for over 200 days. The boat docks and things are are pretty much all closed because of the coronavirus, but they got permission to stay and camp at a boat dock in West Lynn. They stay in touch with a lot of the families that they've helped. And so when they came to Portland, it led to this kind of strange mini reunion. They don't save life, but they save us from, from wandering and from... From the hurt, from the pain, it's all left when, when they found a loved one. Yeah. My name is Mai Silapase. We know them through a, a search for uncle and auntie who drowned in Sacramento River in 2013. They were out fishing on a Thanksgiving day. Something happened to them. Both were drowned in the river. It's always uh, bittersweet to meet Jean and, um, and uh, Sandy out here. Every time when they do the search out here, like a couple months ago, they were down at the Snake River. We were there to meet up with them. So my name is Kristen Panetta. It was uh, my husband, um, the father to both of my children, that the Ralstons um, helped us with the recovery search. My name is Alex Panetta. So we were at Lake Billy Chinook, the campsite that we go to uh, every, we like to every year for Father's Day weekend. He did a dive off of uh, the top deck of the pontoon boat. He ended up falling from the top deck and hitting his head um, really hard on the railing. He fell into the water after that and um, he didn't come back up. When they came out in September, Unexpectedly to me, they had um, asked me to join them on the boat um, for the search efforts. And it was a remarkable thing to actually go back to the place of the accident. But to be participating in that recovery effort, it was a really therapeutic activity. Ultimately, um, we got to the point where they had really done such a thorough search that their wasn't much else that they could 
cover in order um, to find him. I think the kids and I would all agree that it was probably maybe even harder for them to come off the water and tell us that they couldn't find him than it was for us to hear it. Um, They put their heart and soul into doing this for families. And when you are the family in need of their help, you can feel that. There is some comfort in knowing how good and how thorough and how loving they are and all that compassion that they put into their work. But even when they can't find success and bring your loved one home, you, or I, I should speak for myself, can take comfort in, again, if they can't do it, nobody can, and finding, again, that peace some other way. And in our way, it's just that Pat loved where he was, and and that's ultimately where he decided to stay. It would be very hard, I think, to go on a search like that with the anticipation of what might be found. That, that takes a, a, a level of courage for both the searchers and the family members that go along on the search. One of the stories I did 30 years ago was when the uh, kids on Mount Hood uh, were caught in a storm and they, uh, many of them died up on the mountain. And one of the people I met was a Portland firefighter, a search and rescue man who was often called out. And his nickname was the bagger because he often found bodies of people who died and they put them on the body bag. And I asked him, why do you, first off, does the nickname bother you? And it, it didn't. He felt just like this, this couple you're talking about. It was his mission. He had the skills to do this and the emotional fortitude to do this. And it truly was a mission of mercy for him to go search for the body and bring the body back down off the mountain. It's a, it's a technical skill being able to use that equipment and interpret that equipment and understand what you're seeing. But it's also, it, it takes a lot emotionally. You have to be a very strong person, I think, emotionally and mentally, spiritually, to be able to do this work repeatedly over and over. You might not know the answer to this, but are they spiritual? What are they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Gene talked to me a little bit about this. I mean, he feels like there is divine guidance for him in what he does. The day that this incident happened, happened to be my birthday, April 16th, 75 years old. Did that mean something to you, maybe? Well, it, it did, to, it, to a certain certain extent. You know, I, I believe in certain omens and things happening and divine guidance and, and various things. Uh, we have found people for no other reason than divine guidance. I, I, my, my body is telling me that yes, we need to slow down. We, we need to think about, uh, you know, not putting yourself through all of this, the, the mental stress and physical stress, uh, because it is very tiring. Um, but my heart and mind says, you know, you can't say no. So. We've, we've had a, a number of people contact us and want to carry on, but they have full-time jobs, and this is not something you can do and still have a full-time job. Uh, you've got to be able to pick up and go in a moment's notice uh, for a week, two weeks. Sometimes we've been on searches for 30 days at a stretch away from home. 
and he they, they talked with local law enforcement before they came out. Um, he'd been out on this river before for a search, but they wanted to know if, realistically, what was the chance of them finding the body. Um, there's There's so much technical stuff that goes into that. I mean, some bodies are never found. Um, it can take weeks before gases develop inside of a body to raise it to a surface if it's even going to come to the surface at all. A lot of it depends on the conditions at the bottom of the river um, and, and what that looks like. And so they they talked and decided that there was a good chance that they would be able to recover his body. And, and they came out. We're going to hear more about Gene and Sandy's searches and how they do this work after we take a short break. So explain what they do. The local agencies can't. Is it a matter of time? The kind of equipment they have? What what makes these people do what officials can't do? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of all of that. They do have more specialized equipment than most search and rescue agencies. They use um, what's called side scan sonar, and it uses a transducer that shoots out uh, basically a sound beam. And that transducer gets lowered into the water, and then it is towed by their boat. It shoots out a sound wave across the bottom of the floor, and as it hits objects, it bounces back. Any object that has some height to it laying on the bottom will create a shadow, provided the source of the sound is down close to the bottom. And then Gene sees that on a computer screen, and he's able to interpret what those bumps and and mounds are. He's able to even tell, like, what position the body is in, if it's facing up or down, um, because he can see, you know, if the knees are up or if the toes are down in in the sand. So if you can get the transducer really low to the bottom, then you can get a more clear view. It's kind of like a little bit like an archaeologist looking at stuff. Yeah, yeah. What most search and rescue agencies have is called side view sonar. And so in that setup, the transducer is mounted to the hull of the ship. Um, It's like what a lot of fishermen use to try to find out if there are fish below them or not. It's not creating that shadow detail by having the source of the illumination, if you will, down close to the bottom. So it's not as detailed as what you not, not as Not quite as detailed, and, and it's generally good to 30, maybe 40 feet. So in the search for Saul, Clackamas County had spent days looking for him. The other thing is that a lot of these public agencies have limited funds and limited people and limited resources, and so they're going to put the the bulk of their efforts into the rescue part of it. If there's a chance that somebody can still be alive, then necessarily the search part of it, because the search could go on. I mean, sometimes a body is never found. It could take weeks for the gases inside of a body to raise it to the surface, and some of those bodies never come up to the surface at all because they get snagged on things or what have you. Um, So, you know, after the first couple of days, if they don't find someone who's presumed drowned, there really is nowhere else for a lot of families to turn to except for people like the Ralstons. Eleven days had passed by the time Gene and Sandy came out. They got in, I think, on like a Monday early evening. We were able to go out to the search area and uh, do some what we thought was going to be just preliminary 
uh, look-see at the area, but it turned into uh, an actual um, search and, and discovery and recovery. Uh, we had an image of him in the first um, 18 minutes, I think it was. Gosh, that's it's. It's almost like a, a combination of science and divine intervention. Some of it is science, and some of it is skill, and some of it is something else. They called Clackamas County to come out with their divers, and they were able to retrieve Saul's body that evening. And his family and his friends were standing on shore, and, um, and they were singing. He was in, I believe, 70 to 75 feet of water, is what the divers told us, and that agrees with what our depth sounder said. Yeah, just, can you describe it? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's bittersweet. You know, it's, I'm so glad that we got to bring him home, um, that he's with his family, but it also brings a sense of realism, and um, it brings a sense of, you know, just, it just hits you heavier. I don't know what we'd all be feeling if we're still sitting there on that river, and I feel so bad for families that don't, don't have that, and, and can't bring their loved ones home. When we find the body and bring them back uh, to shore, it's like they died all over again. They're going through that. They've lost all hope that they could still be alive. You know, they know in their, their minds or their hearts that, you know, he's, he's gone, but they can't accept it until they have the body. It means a lot to the family to have a body back. Sometimes in some states, you know, you actually, the, the bureaucracy of death is complicated when you don't have a body. So there is that part of it, too. I mean, trying to get a death certificate or handle finances or estates and things. The biggest thing is that just emotionally, it's helpful for people to have that, to have the body. What toll do you think this takes on the couple? Uh, They find the body, they get back in their vehicles, and they leave. And you wonder what they talk about on the way home or what they think about. I asked Gene about that a little bit, and, you know, he said the the hardest part is hearing the stories to begin with, is hearing the pain in the voice of the families that reach out to him in, in what happened before they got there. And so when Gene and Sandy enter the picture, they're able to to help, even though it's a very sad situation. The thanks and the gratitude and the love that they get from these families and that they continue to have in those relationships that they keep with these families. I mean, they get Christmas cards, they stay in touch, they, you know, anytime he's back in Portland, people come and see him again. I I think that that brings a lot of meaning and value to them. It's reminding the listeners, I hope, of the reality of our lives, the fragility of our lives, and these strangers who come in, whether it be a doctor or a cop or, or, or this couple, that heals in a different kind of way. That doesn't lessen the wound, but it provides 
a path forward. And so what they're doing is heroic in its, in its own way. They're not able to take the pain away, but they're doing something that is immeasurably valuable for these families. I, I really don't like the word closure. It's, it's terribly overused because things are never closed. Uh, they, the, the pain goes on forever. Um, we've tried to come up with a better word, but resolution perhaps. But um, you know, people seem to think that there's closure now. They can move on with their lives and forget about all of the stuff that happened in the past. There's, there's no forgetting. It's always there. I think it's important that you and I do a little public service announcement. If you are listening to us and you plan on going on the Sandy River, the Columbia or the Willamette or any river, any body of water, wear a life jacket because you don't want to have this couple come out to look for you. And actually, the day before we got ready to record this podcast, I got an email from Gene and he's coming to Portland again. There was a young man whose car was found in the Columbia River, and they have not found him. And so they're going to come back out here and try to help that family. They do a wonderful thing. And I think this story of yours pays tribute to the ability of strangers to come into somebody's life and make a difference. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. We'll bring you more episodes of Oregon Lives every two weeks. We hope that's the plan. If you want to hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have an idea for an Oregon life that we should feature, please email us at podcasts at Oregonian.com. Oregonian.